American identity politics. He found, it, he, he found he needed something more than simply the right words or knowledge about economists. Maria Gomez effectively proves his point about the deflated American dream, but in other ineffable ways, she seems not to quite convince as he's hoped. He found it hard to get into her silk blouse, her pencil skirt, even harder to get under her skin. And then later, trying to describe her marriage, he discovered that he wanted to write cleverly and aphoristically about marriage with a capital M, far more than he wanted to actually describe Maria's particular marriage, which, thinking of his own marriage, seemed suddenly a monumentally complex task, particularly if his own wife, Karina, was going to read it. And there are a million other little examples, flaws that are not simply flaws of language or design, but rather flaws of what? Him? This thought bothers him for a moment. And then another far darker thought comes. Is it possible that if he were only the reader and not the writer of this novel, he would think it a failure? But Clive doesn't wallow in such thoughts for long. His book gets an agent, his agent gets a publisher, his novel goes out into the world. It's well received. It turns out that Clive's book smells like literature and looks like literature and maybe even intermittently feels like literature, and after a while, Clive himself has almost forgotten the strange feeling of untruth, of betrayal, that his novel first roused in him. He becomes not only a fan of his own novel, but its great defender. If a critic points out an overindulgence here or a purple passage there, well, then Clive explains this is simply what he intended. It was all to achieve a certain effect. And in fact, Clive doesn't mind such criticism. Nitpicking of this kind feels superficial compared to the bleak sense he first had that his novel was not only not good, but not true. No one is accusing him of so large a crime. The critics, when they criticize, speak of the brickwork and paintwork of the novel, a bad metaphor, tedious denouement, and are confident he will fix these little mistakes next time round. As for Maria Gomez, Everybody agrees that she's just as you'd imagine a corrupt Hispanic government economist in a pencil skirt to be. Clive is satisfied and vindicated. He begins work on a sequel. Well, that's the end of the not very good tale of Clive. Its purpose was to suggest that somewhere between a critic's necessary superficiality and a writer's natural dishonesty, the truth of how we judge literary success or failure is lost. Discussing this lecture over email with the philosophical writer Alain de Botton, he succinctly outlined the part of our cultural literary conversation that seems to me always to be missing. He said, I've often thought it would be fascinating to ask living writers, never mind critics, what do you yourself think is wrong with your writing? How did you dream of your book before it was created? What were your best hopes? How have you let yourself down? A map of disappointments, that would be a revelation. Map of disappointments. Nabokov would call that a good title for a bad novel. I'd like to use it as a map to guide you through the land where writers live. A country I imagine is mostly beach, with hopeful writers standing on the shoreline while their perfect novels pile up over on the opposite co coast out of reach. Thrusting out of the shoreline are hundreds of piers or disappointed bridges, as Joyce called them. Most writers, most of the time, get wet. Why they get wet 
is of little interest to critics or readers who can only judge the soggy novel in front of them. But for the people who write novels, what it takes to walk to the pier and get to the other side is, to say the least, a matter of some importance. To writers, writing well is not simply a matter of skill, but a question of character. What does it take, after all, to write well? What personal qualities does it require? What personal resources does a bad writer lack? In most areas of human endeavor, we're not shy of making these connections between personality and capacity. Why do we never talk about these things when we talk about books? Well, it's my experience that when a writer meets other writers and the conversation turns to the fault lines of their various prose styles, well, then you hear a slightly different language than the critic's language. Writers do not say, my research wasn't sufficiently thorough, or I thought Casablanca was in Tunisia, or I seem to reify the idea of femininity. At least they don't consider problems like that to be central. They're concerned with the ways in which what they have written reveals or betrays their best or worst selves. Writers feel, for example, that what appear to be bad aesthetic choices very often have an ethical dimension. Writers know that between the platonic ideal of the novel and the novel itself, there is always the pesky self, vain, deluded, myopic, cowardly, compromised. That's why writing is the craft that defies craftsmanship. Craftsmanship alone will not make a novel great. This is hard for young writers like Clive to grasp at first. A skilled cabinet maker will make good cabinets and a skilled cobbler will mend your shoes. But skilled writers very write, rarely write good books and almost never write great ones. There's a rogue element somewhere. For convenience's sake, we'll call it the self, though in less metaphysically challenged times, the soul would have done just as well. In our public literary conversations, we're squeamish about the connection between selves and novels. We're repelled by the idea that writing fiction might be, among other things, a question of character. We like to think of fiction as the playground of language, independent of its originator. That's why, in the public imagination, the confession, I did not tell the truth, signifies failure when James Frey says it, and means nothing at all if John Updike says it. But I think that fiction writers know different. Though we may never say it publicly, we know that our fictions are not as disconnected from ourselves as you like to imagine, and we like to pretend. It's this intimate side of literary failure that I want to try and describe. The ways in which writers fail on their own terms. Private, difficult to express, easy to ridicule, completely unsuited for either the regulatory atmosphere of reviews or the objective interrogation of seminars. And yet, despite all this, true. First thing first, I, I don't think writers have perfect or even superior knowledge about the quality or otherwise of their own work. God knows most writers are quite deluded about the nature of their own talent. But writers do have a different kind of knowledge than either professors or critics. Occasionally it's worth listening to. The insight of the practitioner is, for better or worse, unique. It's what you find in the criticism of Virginia Woolf, of Iris Murdoch, of Roland Barthes. What unites those very different critics in my mind is the confidence with which they made the connection between personality and prose. And to be clear, theirs was neither strictly biographical criticism nor 
prescriptively moral criticism, and nothing they wrote was reducible to the childish formulations, only good men write good books, or one must know a man's life to understand his work. But neither did they think of a writer's personality as an irrelevance. They understood style precisely as an expression of personality in its widest sense. My personality is my manner of being in the world, and my writing style is the unavoidable trace of that manner. When you understand style in these terms, you don't think of it as a matter of fanciful syntax or as the flamboyant icing atop a plain literary cake, nor as the uncontrollable result of some mysterious velocity coiled within language itself. Rather, you see style as a personal necessity, as the only possible expression of a particular human consciousness. Style is a writer's way of telling the truth. Literary success or failure, by this measure, depends not only on the refinement of words on a page, but in the refinement of a consciousness, what Aristotle called the education of the emotions. But before we go any further along that track, we find T.S. Eliot, that most distinguished of critic practitioners, standing in our way. In his famous essay of 1919, Tradition and the Individual Talent, Eliot decimated the very idea of individual consciousness, of personality in writing. There was hardly any such thing, he claimed, and what there was was not interesting. For Eliot, the most individual and successful aspects of a writer's work were precisely those places where his literary ancestors asserted their immortality most vigorously. The poet and his personality were irrelevant. The poetry was everything, and the poetry could only be understood through the glass of literary history. That